Our reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 34, page 988 in the smaller print Bibles and 1502 in the large print Bibles. Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Father God, as your son gave sight to those blind men, would you pray you would... Give us sight this morning, open our eyes to see you in all your glory 
Help us to understand what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, fill our hearts with a real desire to follow him with all of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the um, end of our sermon series in chapters 18 to 20 of Matthew's Gospel, uh, which we've been considering under the title Kingdom Values. Um, In this series, we've been looking at just how radically different it means to live as a Christian compared to someone else who might live who does not know Jesus Christ. And it's important to know and live out these values, not just um, because it's a wonderful way to live your life, but because living in such a way reveals Jesus to those around us. Let's just uh, recap as we start on some of the values we have been looking at um, in this series and see how they compare with the values of the world. We started a few weeks back, you may remember, looking at the, the value of humility. Do you remember Jesus called a child to him? And he said, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom. And humility is contrasted with the world's value, which is all about status, about image, and about self-promotion. We look at forgiveness, and if we appreciate just how much God has forgiven us, then we will find it easier to forgive others, however many times they may wrong us. And again, that's contrasted with the worldly value of, of if somebody's done something to me, I will do the same back to them. I will somehow get my revenge. We looked at sacrifice and um, thought about just as Jesus gave up everything for us, so we should give up everything for him. And we had the story of the rich young ruler who found it very difficult to give up his worldly wealth, which again reflects the materialism of our society. But it's a faithfulness. In the same way that Jesus is faithful to his people, so should we be faithful to one another, and particularly to our husbands and wives if we are married. Whereas the world says, actually, I just want to be fulfilled. I want to be happy in my marriage, and if it's not giving me what I want, I will end it and move on. And last week we looked at grace. Because of our self-centeredness, our rebellion against God, we don't deserve his love. And yet he shows us that God is all about rights. Um, getting what I deserve for my efforts. Well, this morning we're looking at the value of servanthood. Because greatness, even in Jesus' day, and even amongst the disciples we will see, was seen in status, in power, in being served by others. But Jesus' radical teaching was that true greatness is found in serving others. And what has struck me um, in these chapters is also just how you could look at each one separate little parables are all woven together. You could look at each one separately, each short one, but when you take two or three together, you see how the themes are developed and how the worldliness is contrasted with Jesus' kingdom values. And uh, this morning, again, we have three little sections in this, uh, this reading. We have Jesus' prediction of his death and resurrection, which opens the door to his kingdom, the ultimate sacrifice. We then have the story of the disciples juggling for, for the, uh, the top jobs in the kingdom. A bit like coming to the prime minister when a cabinet reshuffle is, is imminent, which appears totally 
tactless, insensitive when Jesus has just told them he's going to give up his life for them. And then we finish with the story of the two blind men, which finishes this section and really summarizes what being Christian is all about. They saw who Jesus was, and they knew that he de- they depended on his mercy to heal them. Well, let's have a look at uh, the first um, section from verse 17 to 19. This is the, um, the third or even fourth time that Jesus predicts his death. There are probably other times when he mentions it in the course of his life, which are, are not recorded in this gospel. But each time it's met with a different reaction. Back in chapter 16, and um, verse 22, it's met with denial by Peter. He says, never, Lord, never so this happen to you. Why? Because he's a king. Uh, a king should not have to suffer. Uh, a king comes to conquer. But of course, Jesus conquered sin and death through his suffering. In chapter 17, verse 23, we're told the disciples were filled with grief. Grief, no doubt, over the impending loss of a very special friend. And in this passage here, we have Jesus' most detailed prediction so far, in which he says, in verse 18, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now just think for a moment how Countercultural, this is. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, who could destroy his enemies just by calling down a legion of angels, is saying that true greatness is not found in exercising power over others, but in serving others. And that service may entail opposition, it may entail rejection, even agonizing death for those you serve. He knows what is going to happen. And he's committed to it. And so in verse 18, it says, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the next chapter describes that entry into Jerusalem as king. He's saying, we're not going to flee to a a safer place to avoid what's going to happen. We're going into enemy territory. We're going to do what I came to do. But why does he have to do this? Why does he have to die? The answer is down there in verse 28. It's to give his life as a ransom for many. As we probably know, a ransom is an amount of money which is paid to release somebody in captivity. Maybe a prisoner of war, or maybe a, a slave. Today it's often used in the context of a hostage situation. Paid to release that person and save them from impending death. The death of Jesus is the price that God paid for sinners to go free. Because we are all born into captivity, captivity to sin. And unless we are freed from that captivity, we will one day die and face an eternity in hell. But God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And so he pays the price for us to be freed. Death is not the end. It's the door to to life. Jesus does not remain dead. God vindicates his suffering by raising him 
to life on the third day. And if we fully appreciate what Jesus is saying here, then the next episode is actually quite crass, isn't it? Because have a look at uh, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, although it's the mother who does the asking, Jesus replies to, to them. In other words, the mother and the boys. So this is not just a pushy parent. Um, she's asking for something both the boys want. And what they're doing is going against what Jesus was talking about last time. Do you remember when he said the last will be first, the first will be last. And what James and John are looking for here is to, to be first and the others to be last. It's pure earthly ambition. It's not the sort of humble sacrifice or servanthood that we've been looking at. And as we look at Jesus' reply to them, we see his, his grace in action, don't we? He doesn't say, look, didn't you just hear what I said about giving up my life for you? How can you be talking about this sort of stuff? Now, instead he says, in verse 22, you don't know what you are asking. You don't know what you're asking. You've misunderstood what the kingdom is about. To follow me is not about earthly status. It means to take up your cross and to endure suffering. And so he asks them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? A cup is an Old Testament symbol of suffering and in some cases God's wrath. And a few chapters later, in chapter 26, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his Father. And this is what he says. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Jesus has come to serve. He's come to give. He's come to suffer. He's come to die. And Jesus asks James and John, can you do that? And somewhat surprisingly, they say, yes. Although at this stage, they probably haven't fully understood what uh, Jesus means. And when Jesus is eventually arrested, they scarper. But Jesus says here, you will indeed drink from my cup. He knows in the first instance they will flee for their lives, but, but later on they will change. And sure enough, after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, they do drink the cup. They do endure suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ, which culminates in James being executed by Herod and John, we believe, being exiled to the island of Patmos. But Jesus goes on to say, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. As we were talking about on Thursday evening in the discussion about the role of men and women in the church, the three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal 
but have different roles. The father is the head of the son, um, and therefore the son submits to him. And in this case, Jesus is saying it's the role of the father to allocate places in the kingdom, whatever that looks like. That doesn't make him superior in being to the son, because value is not measured by role. At this stage, the disciples don't really get this. And so when they, when the others heard about James and John going to Jesus, their little power play, um, we're told they were indignant in verse 24. Not because they believe they shouldn't have asked, but because they think actually they're trying to steal a march on them. They're trying to get one over them here. And so Jesus calls them all together. And he says to them, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. It's the same point again. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. The last is a servant, a slave. You need to act Like a servant, he's telling them. Leadership in the world is about personal ambition. ambition. It's about fulfillment. In Jesus' kingdom, it's about responsibility. Responsibility to care for others. Responsibility to, to serve others. And so the leadership responsibility of a husband in the home is to, to care for, to serve his wife. The leadership role of an elder is to care for, to serve the flock. And in case you don't know what that looks like, Jesus says to them, follow my example. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, as we try and apply this, there are three, three four questions I want to, to ask you. And the first of those is, do you have a servant heart? Are you aware of the needs of those around you? Or are you so wrapped up in your own needs, your own life? How do we use our our limited time and resource to serve ourselves or to serve others? It doesn't necessarily mean you are physically able to serve, but you can still have a heart for, for others. During David Turner's long illness, he and Rita would send um, out regular updates on his health, but at the bottom of them, they would always finish by asking, don't forget to let us know your prayer needs and your concerns. Secondly, do you serve with joy? If we have a servant heart, then it's likely we will serve with joy. doesn't mean it's always easy. Um, serving can be really tough. But it means I don't, I don't grumble because I love those I serve. Chris Mace's uh, funeral last uh, week, we heard um, about his service and um, about the time when he was living in Aylesbury, working down in Bath. Um, his daughter was in hospital in Cambridge. And he would make that route from, from Aylesbury to Bath to, to Cambridge back to, to Aylesbury. Although service is hard, it's a joy when we love those we serve. And that's why this little um, uh, membership booklet is entitled The Joy of Praying, of Giving, of Serving. Thirdly, do you see serving as a privilege 
My uh, nephew and nieces live quite close to Wimbledon, and um, over the years, all of them have worked as ball boys and girls um, at the tennis championships. It's not easy to get in. You have to go through a rigorous sort of selection process. Um, and you think, well, just to run around and fetch some balls and give a towel to somebody. Um, what's that all about? But lots of people want to do it for the privilege of working at Wimbledon, the privilege of mixing with all these great tennis stars. But if that's a privilege, then serving the Almighty God is a far greater privilege, isn't it? Because the amazing thing is he doesn't actually need our service. In Acts 17, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is totally self-sufficient. There is nothing we can do for him that he cannot do himself. And yet, he graciously accepts our service. In the same way uh, that a a parent joyfully accepts um, the contribution of a young child who wants to help. Because service is a way of coming closer to God. I find it hard sometimes as a pastor when there's a a particular vacancy in the church to to ask somebody if they would consider taking that on. Because it can come across like I I need them to to do me a favor. Uh, And in one sense, they are doing me a favor. But what gives me greater pleasure is not filling a vacancy, but seeing someone enjoying the privilege of using a God-given gift to serve him. In this um, little book we've been covering in this series, I'm a church member. Um, it sums that privilege up at the, the end of the book in this, um, what they call a pledge. But let me read it to you. It says, church membership is a gift. When I received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, I became a part of the body of Christ. I soon thereafter identified with a local body and was baptized. And now I'm humbled and honored to serve and to love others in our church. I pray that I will never take my membership for granted, but see it as a gift and an opportunity to serve others and to be part of something so much greater than any one person or member. If you haven't got a copy of that book, have a word with me afterwards and I can can give you one. Finally, do you rely on God's grace in your service? A few years ago, I met um, the, the couple who did the youth work in the church I was in when I grew up. Um, so they were my youth uh, leaders, if you like. And um, knowing what I was like as a teenager, um, they said to me, I can't believe that you are a pastor, um, which is very encouraging. Um, I said, well, actually, nor can I. But isn't God's grace amazing? Isn't God's grace amazing? In Ephesians 2, it says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith but then it goes on to say for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do we are saved by grace but we're also equipped to serve God by his grace a few weeks ago I mentioned um, that in September 1853 Amelia Taylor 
came to see her 21-year-old son Hudson off at the docks in Liverpool to go off to China to evangelize that country. And I told that story in connection with sacrifice. Both of them made a sacrifice as a mother and son. But nearly 40 years later, in 1890, um, after the China Inland Mission, um, which Hudson Taylor founded, had uh, succeeded in spreading the gospel throughout China, uh, he was invited to Australia to, uh, to encourage Christians there to get involved in evangelism in China. And at a large um, Presbyterian church in Melbourne, he was um, introduced as our illustrious guest. And apparently Taylor stepped onto the, the stage um, where he stood silently a moment before beginning, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. A leader of the Church of Scotland also once said to him, you must sometimes be tempted to, to be proud because of the wonderful way God has used you. I doubt if any man living has had greater honor. And Taylor responded, on the contrary, I often think that God must have been looking for someone small enough and weak enough for him to use and that he found me. A lot of us, I'm sure, can relate to that. Let's finish on the last uh, section, the last few verses, because um, this shows us that entry to the kingdom is dependent on Jesus' mercy. Jesus and his disciples leave Jericho. There, they're followed by a large crowd, um, and by the roadside are sitting two blind men, doing what they do every day, begging for money so they have something to eat. But on this particular day, they, they hear that Jesus is passing by, and no doubt they would have heard about this, this teacher, this uh, amazing man, and all the miracles that he'd been doing, the preaching he'd been doing. And so as the crowd starts to get larger, they, they hear that he's passing by, and they shout out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They're either a little bit embarrassing or a bit annoying. Um, the crowd want to see Jesus themselves. So they tell them to shut up. But we're told they shouted all the louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. At which point Jesus stops and he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight straightforward request the thing is they believed that Jesus had the power to give them back their sight they know there's nothing they can offer Jesus um, they don't deserve it they're totally dependent on his mercy but amazingly we're told in verse 34 Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes immediately they received their sight and followed him Jesus has power. He has the power to, to save himself from death. But he chooses not to. And instead he uses his power to save two apparently unimportant blind men. Two people who are lost in the crowd, uh, who have been cast out by society. But two people who are precious to Jesus. Because the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. This is true servanthood. Jesus is not going to get anything in return, um, but he does it out of compassion. Look at the contrast of the disciples. Their request is to have positions of greatness, 
which shows their blindness. The crowd telling their blind men to shut up shows their blindness. The request of the blind men shows they can even see before Jesus heals them. They can see who Jesus is. They can see what he can do. And in this little episode, we see just how simple it is to become a Christian. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler asked. We're here. We see it from the blind men. It's the ABC. Admit you are a sinner in need of mercy. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and can forgive you. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us and confess Jesus is Lord. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. To follow him means making him number one in your life, giving up worshipping whatever else you may be worshipping and worshipping Jesus. And it also means serving. Because Jesus goes around serving those who are in need. And so if we are one of his followers, we'll be doing the same. Service is not something we do if we've got a bit of spare time on our hands. In the same way that praying is not something we do when we've got a bit of spare time on our hands. Giving is not something we do if we've got a bit of spare change in our pocket. Serving, praying, giving. Our giving of our best to the one who gave himself for us. Who came not to be served, but to serve. So let me leave you with this question. Will you give your life to him? Will you follow Jesus if you haven't done so already? Because there is no better life. He is the only way you will find true eternal life. And if you have already given your life to him, if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, how is your service? Do you have a servant heart? Do you serve with joy? Do you see serving as a privilege? Do you rely on God's grace in your service? Just for a moment to reflect on that and pray to to the Lord and speak to him and see what it is that uh, he can change in your life. Father God, we thank you that Jesus came as a servant king. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Lord, that he paid the price that we can be free, that we can enjoy a relationship with you. And thank you that he gave us an example to follow in terms of his service of others. Lord, we do pray you'd fill our hearts with a desire to serve, that we'd see service as a great privilege, a great joy. We thank you that it's by your grace that we are able to serve. In Jesus' name. Amen.